Morgan. And I'm Isabo. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About oatmeal progenitors. About calculus and geometry. About sugar scoop bonnets. About the society <laughs> of friends. <laughs> about having an opening. <laughs> <laughs> But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. And this week, we have a very special guest. We are joined by Melanie Johnson. Hello. Writer extraordinaire with her very first debut book coming out. April 30th, Getting Hot with the Sky. Oh my god! (laughs) And it's going to be boom, 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 because it's three books in three months. They're going oh to do a triple release. God. It's so nice. So you can easily binge. Mm. That's the point. A little Take the Melanie summer. Johnson. Yes, the summer of Melanie Johnson. <laughs> We're calling it summer 2019 <laughs> is the summer of Melanie. Melanie Johnson. Summer of Melanie sounds real good. I knew it. <laughs> that sounds like another book. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like your memoir. <laughs> summer of Melanie. Or somebody else's memoir. Involving <laughs> 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 me. <laughs> the one summer of Melanie. I think I know someone who could write that book. First and last name and home Uh, address of the person who would write the book. Mm, No. (laughs) We're going to talk this week about Flowers from the Storm by... Laura Kinsale. Because it's Melanie's favorite romance novel. Favorite romance ever. So when we asked you what your favorite romance was, how long did it take you to think... Flowers from the Storm. Uh, zero. Zero seconds. <laughs> I have a lot of romances I love, but yeah. when I have to narrow it down to the one, it is this one. Cool. And why is it your favorite? Because of all the feels. We were talking about when did you read this book, and I read this book when I was 15, which is quite some time ago, and it has stuck with me throughout all of that time. Speaking of all the feels, being 15. What a feeling time. <laughs> what a time of great Well, feelings. I have a 15-year-old right now. Oh, oh my so God. <laughs> so when I was listening to your January episodes, which a lot of them were dealing with teen angst and all the teen stuff, I'm like, uh-huh, yes, tell me. <laughs> tell me all about it. Cranked up to 11. And this book really is just like dripping in feels. It's it so earnest. It's soaked. so wrought. They're chase scenes. They're interrupted. Like, there are eruptions. This was basically my catnip for a romance novel. When I think romance, this is, like, the kind of book I want to be reading. Do you want to give a summary for us? Well, that's the tricks. (laughs) I was trying to give a summary of this to my 15-year-old, and I realized how... How it sounds when you just, you know, go through the basics. So the heroine is from the Society of Friends, which is what we kind of know of as Quakers. And her father is a mathematician. And the hero is a duke who also is actively involved in mathematics. And so her father and this duke are working together on solving some amazing mathematical problem. I could not tell you. Absolutely <laughs> no idea. The math is important. But he's really <laughs> smart and it's what they do is amazing. Anyways, then afterwards he's going to be in a duel because he was caught in bed with some guy's wife and he basically has a stroke. But the time period that we're in, people don't understand what a stroke is. So yeah. because of the issue he presents where he can't speak and he can't function, they put him in a mental institution. And we won't discuss the loopholes that got the Quaker girl to be in the same mental mental institution. <laughs> but she is conveniently working there and she comes is. across him mm-hmm. there and recognizes him and then she has an opening. 
being from God. <laughs> right, yeah. which is a term, I believe, that's used in the Society of Friends where it's basically a message from God saying that this is your opening to do my work in your world. I think it's probably a little bit of pants feels <laughs> that might be part of the opening a little, but that she wants to help him, that she's truly coming from a place of recognizing that he hasn't lost his mind, but that he's ill in a different way and that she's going to help him. And so things go from there. Yeah. Go on adventures and they fall in love. They get married in a very intense ceremony. Yes. It all comes down to kind of like saving the ducal line and Mm -hmm. saving his reputation and the way that she, the author, puts the pieces together builds the conflict one piece on top of the other and it's so heartbreaking at one point where they're in this marriage but that's not the end of it because the heroine Maddie talks about, well, when we get you through this test of your cognitive ability, maybe then we will have the marriage dissolved. Mm -hmm. So no sexy times. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But they don't keep that. Yeah, and it's one of the things I loved about this book is like it feels really episodic. There were moments where it's like I actually don't know where I am in time and part of that I think was the effect of our Duke Christian's ailment and part of it was like this book is just moving through episodes and so like this is the scene where we have this interruption and like this is the scene where he agrees not to consummate the marriage and then like two scenes later they're making out on the floor and I was like I love it so much. (laughs) It's like we don't have to spend time on stuff that's like getting to the hallway. We just appear in the hallway and I kind of loved that about this book where I'm like oh here I am. I feel like this book hit me at the exact right moment because I was getting a little disillusioned on the genre. Of this. romance or historical romance? Of romance. Okay. And then I came to this and I was like, oh yeah, this is very good. This <laughs> is a very good book. Like I would stop reading it and like be like, this is very good. I like showed one of my coworkers and told him that I was on a romance novel podcast because I was like, this is a very good book and I think you should read it. It deals with so I, many issues. It's incredibly well written and that whole, well, it's just a romance that oh. doesn't need that disclaimer because it is good fiction. It is mm. Yeah, and it does these like fantastic things with switching perspective where it's not just Mm -hmm. going into the place of like, this is what the fella really thinks about the lady. It's like, this is the fella's inner turmoil and you can see him progressing as a character as his interior voice changes. It's a masterclass in deep POV. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it totally was. And like listening to it is so interesting because like the moments where you have like a sort of ethereal remove and then you're like more immediately in this awful turmoil of not being able to find the words and like the way that a brain that is trying to make its connections that used to have connections so easily. It was amazing to hear the narrator, Nicholas Bolton, takes all of that to another level because you can hear like the pain Mm -hmm. in his voice as he struggles to find that one word and the whole idea of being a victim of a stroke and kind of finding your way through that and the scene when they think he's dead Mm -hmm. and they don't bury him because his dogs start barking and won't let them come near him. Oh my god! His dogs. Love the name devil for a dog. Yeah. I think that's really brilliant. So good. (laughs) All of the imagery of like the devil and also like the god work happening in this book. Like they have this like really funny scene where they um, show up at the town where Milton wrote Paradise Lost and he keeps (laughs) just saying lost, lost. And they're like, we're not lost. We know where we are. And he's like, "Mm -hmm." he's like, you guys are all idiots. Yeah. He's like Philistines. (laughs) I love it. What a rollicking ride. It really is. The other reason I think this book hit me at just the right time is I just finished the new season of Catastrophe and <gasps> Oh man, Melanie. Don't know it. <laughs> you would love this show. This is Amazon series. The guy who got famous on Twitter for being funny, mm-hmm. Rob Delaney. Delaney. He married an Irish woman and then he got a TV show with an Irish comedy.
comedy writer to talk about. All right, I will have to be watching. She, he's from Milwaukee, and he goes to London <laughs> on business. So I can very much. You're gonna be like we're all over it. the it's place. Like, it's like your they wheelhouse, go, exactly. <laughs> he like goes to London for business for a week, and he meets this Irish woman who's a school teacher, and he knocks her up, and she calls him like three months after he's gotten back to Milwaukee, and he has her saved in his phone as Sharon London sex, and she tells him that she's pregnant, and she's gonna keep the baby, so he moves to London, and then the whole show is just like their relationship. But he has a sister who's going through a really bad divorce, and she comes to visit them in London, and she's a Quaker now. And so they show scenes in like a meeting house. She gets to London or after? Before Before. she gets to London, because she's going through this really acrimonious divorce, so she's like, Society of Friends, I need like a higher power to help me through this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And like, you know, Quakers of the modern era. But I had no idea like what Quaker, like the practice of Quaker was. I was Mm -hmm. just like, oh, it's like a What we think of, right, and then I honestly don't know that's the differences between Quaker or Amish or mm-hmm. like I don't know what the difference is. Yeah, are. yeah. But like she in the show was dressed very modern but mm-hmm. very simply. It was like in jeans and a white button down all the time. They show like what a meeting house. It's like a school auditorium. They just sit around in a circle and wait for someone to be struck by the spirit and feel like they need to speak. But I think there was something really grounding and humanizing about that for the Quakers. So once I came to this book, I just took it very seriously. Because yes. you saw it represented in modern day. Exactly, yeah, exactly. As opposed to like the guy on the oatmeal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you love yeah, it. Yeah, it's so it. good. All right. I had friends growing up who were Quaker. Really? Yep. They moved to New Zealand when I was five and then moved back when I was 15. Neighborhood friends. Couldn't cut it in New Zealand, huh? Well, apparently New Zealand, <laughs> much like their British antecedents, don't care about orthodontia or dentistry. So my friend's parents were like, ugh. So they moved back purposely just for teeth? Yes, just for specific because he needed a palate splitter, oh, okay, I which see. I also... So it was more than oh, just Oh, okay. Yeah, was it like... was more... It's like his actual upper jaw was too small, and they're like, well, we could maybe fix it here, but we maybe don't want to. Maybe it's not a good to. word when it comes to your kids. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but they were of the Society of Friends. I always remember their kitchen being full of sunlight and, like, the way that they were very soothing people. So, like, my affiliations with Quakerism was just like, it's 10 o'clock in the morning and I'm soothed. And, like, in this book, they talk about plain speech, which is mm-hmm. the thy thou. And I was like, it's so funny that that's plain speech in Victorian England, but it sounds hyperbolic now, but I also really love it. And that the thy thou and the way that she speaks to Christian throughout just like slows down her speech pattern just yeah. enough that he can understand her better. I also think there's something almost meta about the <laughs> use of plain speech because when I first encountered our heroine's POV and she's doing the thou stuff, I was like, okay, Laura can sail. <laughs> Well, this, this isn't. And then I was like, oh, she's a Quaker. She's and then a Quaker. I was like, egg on my face. Well, it's now I look like the jerk. <laughs> so I think you both said this is your first Laura Kinsale. So Laura Kinsale, I read all of her books. The hero, there's something tragic that has happened to him. He's always coming from a place of injury, whether it be emotional or physical or usually both. And the heroine always has an overinflated sense of self, like in, mm. of their abilities and how the two of those connect. Always very interesting. And so even with Maddie, the heroine of this story, even though she is a Quaker and she is supposed to be humble I think there is a sense of self and a sense of being better I won't say sanctimonious but almost in that in her Quakerism and in her we don't do those things we don't we don't concern ourselves with titles and with yeah. you know with formal speech and we don't worry about those things and I feel like when she first meets him and she thinks he's a complete rake and that he's this devil and this reprobate and morally corrupt yeah and you know that she judges him and feels herself better than him in some ways and I think you see that in all of her books like the heroine has again that inflated sense of self that has to kind of come to terms 
and the hero that is broken and needs to be fixed. I think that's keying into something so astute, right? The fact that she over-believes in herself in spite of her Quakerness, that she's going to be like, oh, this isn't me. This is a mission from God. Well, this is that, my right. opening. Her opening that she's going to, right. to save him. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing to me. Like, this book is so tight. Every single piece plays into something really key that drives the plot. Whereas, like, I remember being like, oh, like, now the author's going to indulge talking about math a lot because they learn something. But no, like every mathematical thing it, keys into all, the plot. And I love that she made him like such a brilliant man, like such a genius, because the loss of it is so much more yeah. felt. He doesn't lose his ability to reason, but he loses the pieces that he needs to perform those functions. Every hero has some kind of fatal flaw or something that happened to them that mm-hmm. has like damaged injured, them. damaged them. But like, it sounds like Laura can sail. She really, she goes for she like goes real. For so the first book I read of hers is The Prince of Midnight. He was kind of like a hero swashbuckling, you know, guy who was injured and has vertigo and he was like this this legendary swordsman and now with the vertigo like he can barely walk without you know being constantly dizzy yeah and so his journey and his ability to kind of like you base your self-worth on these things you can do mm-hmm. and then you lose that ability to do that thing and that's, you see that a lot. You see that with the character in Prince of Midnight and then with Flowers from the Storm. I was thinking about this when I was reading it. I was wondering, like, what is the function of taking away that skill? Like, what is the purpose of it? Because everything is serving a purpose in this book. So why does, if I could be, like, totally speculative, mm-hmm. why does this particular author feel like stripping the male hero of something okay. is key to I the story? I can't speak for her, but as but, someone yeah, reading but it how and does looking it work? at it, yeah. I, would, I would feel like it grounds them in a way that they have to figure out who they are without that thing mm-hmm. and then it, it opens them up in a way that they would not have been open before and it, it makes them vulnerable in a way they never would have been I think vulnerability is the key here it also like shakes loose and vulnerability and like in the men that her heroes are is yeah. like attractive yeah and like that's another yes! thing oh like, my god it comes with not only does it come with like this like Oof, like sort of like bestial yeah yeah it distills down his speech to like the really key ideas yeah like bullets and so they're deeply impactful indeed every time <laughs> and like the other thing it does is like it shakes loose all of the antagonists in a way that felt like really impressive because like the real antagonism in this book is like this affliction but it's also then his conniving sister's husband right the people that are trying to manipulate the world around him for their own self gain yes. right and like then the question of like producing an heir becomes so important and then like Mm -hmm. you have this illegitimate and like his mistress comes out of the woodwork like the way in which this book then catalyzes a kind of affliction and a kind of vulnerability to like make a comment about like true friendship and a comment about how it is that women are treated worse in societies like this one oh Oh, okay so like the home in the mental institution when he talks about the women who are there yeah and how how they were diverting their blood from their female organs yeah (laughs) the whole thing of like it's really nice that we have women here so that our male patients can have that grounding. And it's like, so what that about more them? Yeah. Like, what about the women <laughs> that are getting exposed to these guys who are like... But there's the thing is they believed those things. Doctors were like, you cannot read or do math because then your female organs aren't getting the blood they need. Or like whenever he pushes her down and she hurts her arm mm-hmm. and the doctor becomes obsessed with the idea that she's obviously miscarried because she has to be pregnant within her first month of marriage. And if she gets her period within two days like he caused a miscarriage that was a moment where I was like so here we have a doctor and he's like really 
really probing Christian about like how the fall happened, how this sprain happened. He's like really trying to piece it together. And then Christian comes out with it and says, I caused it. And then there's like this pause with the doctor. <laughs> and I'm like, are we going to have a moment where somebody like talks about how bad it is to like hit women? And he's like, I want you to treat more tenderly with your wife. And I was like, fuck <laughs> you, man. And that's it. The that's doctor's like, like it. Oh, okay, I get I mean, it. I get well, it. Try a, not to a, do it again. Man, B, he's of the nobility. Exactly. Like, you do not. Yeah. No, he's not going to correct the Duke on whether or not he's like clacking his wife. I was like, man. Whereas like our Quaker foil to our hero is oh, yes. very Richard willing Gill. to confront all the time yeah. the Duke, which I is interesting. Richard. One of my favorite things about this book is the antagonist because the book treats them with a seriousness and an understanding. They're not the mustache curling evil person for plot purposes. They're real people with real motivation. Yeah, like even Manning, who speaks once, I think, in the book and is terrible, and we Mm -hmm. know him as this like malevolent force. Via his friends, our hero's friends, we discover like, hey, he really believes that you are going to destroy the whole family. Mm -hmm. That's what's happening here. They were like, it's not, sure, maybe it started as self-preservation. convinced himself at least that you are the greatest threat to his children Mm -hmm. yeah i'm a big fan of the not black and white heroes and villains Mm -hmm. even if they don't fit our ideas of like what makes a good person like lady de marley Mm -hmm. making the distinction that she does not love her nephew but she understands him there's something so rich in that I love Lady Demarle. Like, <laughs> uninhibited did I love the old dragon. So rereading this book, I realized that there are shades of that character in the mother of the hero in my second book. Like, mm. like you, it was such an interesting oh, thing for me yeah. to like, oh, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> the second book, there's a very strong Austin element to it. And so I, I was focusing on the Lady Catherine aspects mm-hmm. of the yes! character. But then reading this, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Right. It was so easy for me to picture Lady Demarle as a Lady Catherine. Oh, totally. Catherine de Bourgh, except like humanized and then yeah. in a way that I could like access and feel for. I think with Catherine de Bourgh, I think like in hindsight, reading her sympathetically depends so much on like an understanding of Austin's time and like culture. I was watching a BBC PBS co-production around <laughs> Austin and they talked about the fact Austin was pop literature for its day and so it makes a lot of assumptions of its readers understanding and that's where like a lot of slippage happens or that's what this professor was postulating. Mm-hmm. But I think, yeah, Laura Kinsale, this book, does a great job of reorienting that idea of a dragon lady and like mm-hmm. a, you know, ruthless gentry she's, title. She's in charge of keeping the family going. Yeah. Right. So I've been watching, speaking of, you you were talking about Catastrophe. Yeah. I've been watching Cable Girls. Oh, yeah. Which is the matriarch of the very rich family who, same thing, like she kind of will manipulate situations and do not the most moral thing mm-hmm. in what she believes is best for the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So definitely an archetype. Exactly. Yeah. And there's still something so like, I never would be like, Lady de Marley is a bad person mm-hmm. or even a villain. Well, I even think, though she I think the villains says, are heroes in their own mind, right? Yeah. They're doing the things that they're doing, you know, for what they believe are just reasons. Exactly. And I think this book does such a great job of, think about all the people we meet and Mm -hmm. how real and full not only their character, but their motivations and intentions are. Yeah. I mean, if we want to go back to the insane asylum, we have cousin Edward who's running this insane Mm -hmm. asylum and as clean a shop as he can imagine and with all of the (laughs) modern cold baths and straight jackets and manacles that he can manage. Yeah. It's all very pleasant. It's all very pleasant. (laughs) It's all very clean. There's a drawing room. 
room. There's a garden. Yeah, and like you can go out on walks supervised and that the staff is staffed in such a way that it's one staff person to one patient and all of this stuff. And like Cousin Edward's not a bad dude. He's just like deeply misinformed and like a bad doctor. Well, because we're coming at it from our knowledge of things that, right. And so within his time, is he a bad guy? And the fact that he does allow her when she comes to him and she says, I need to treat this patient who's already manhandled her and held her, you know, at razor razor, at her throat, you know, and for him to be like, oh, well, okay. You have had this opening from God, so let's see where this goes. And to be fair to the author, there is some work, some finessing of it. It doesn't happen instantly. There is some discussion. There is some conflict involved with getting it to that point. And what I liked was how even within Maddie, the heroine, even within her kind of having that opening and then accepting it, there were moments where she kept talking about like the reasoner mm-hmm. or, you know, various yeah. things. Like, well, why don't you work with the female patients instead? Yeah. If you've got hands-on time, we'll give you hands-on time with the women. And she's like, you know, yeah, that would probably be easier, you know, on me. But no, that's the reasoner. I need to stick with my initial. And there were a couple of moments like that. So it doesn't feel like it's such an easy thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every single plot point in this book is so fully earned. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I I know. I never felt like we were skipping ahead or skipping moves. And like even maybe our most base antagonist, like Manning is certainly one, but also the orderly who I only know is the ape. Right. Yeah. (laughs) The Jennings, is that what his name? Larkin. 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 I like the fact that he's genuinely kind of a bad dude and he's like maybe a sadist and like there's something there, but like there's also this like class element that she brings up when he like organizes one of the other patients to attack Christian. And then he's like, I'm not going to tell the big boss about this pretty lady because, like, that's not how we operate here. This is like, you and me, right, pal? Yeah, we're like, you we're and me. This. And, like, you know, he does genuinely believe that, like, these people are dangerous. And, like, he does care deeply about her safety because of his own job security. But, like, right. all of his motivations are explicit to me, the reader. He's never just truly the ape. Like, yeah. I right. understood yes. him. Yeah. yeah. Like, he's not just there for plot purposes. Right. Yeah. I thought a lot about nerve ratchet yep. because I do feel like <laughs> <laughs> one blew over the cuckoo's nest there is our seminal mental yes. institution yes. text. And thinking about the performance in the film of Nurse Ratchet and how listening to that actress talk through her choices and she was like, no one would ever come at this as I want to hurt these patients. Like you would rationalize it. Like maybe an animalistic part of you just wants to lash out, but you can't do that. People can't do that in society. So like how would my character rationalize it? And I think even with the ape, we can see him rationalizing things. Like he holds Christian underwater too long to teach him a lesson because he did lash out violently. But then we also know that the ape is kind of understood as this precarious character because the other orderlies laugh whenever Christian pushes him into the tub. Right. Like, so there's definitely a sense of, you know, retribution. Yeah, absolutely. Not only on a class level, but also on a, you've made me look stupid in front of my peers. Level. Yeah, yeah. That idea of being embarrassed is so powerful and shame is so oh, pervasive in there this is, book. Oh, yes. There's shame so on, yes, much shame. On, on all, all kinds of levels. And Christian's level and the shame he feels for being seen as an animal mm-hmm. and for Maddie and her shame for being seen as a wanton woman yeah. or a woman who now has these expensive things and fine things and how the friends will look at her. And One thing I think is really difficult when encountering a sex scene, especially in historicals, I imagine, you have to kind of take into consideration that maybe this woman feels bad about having sex. 
or like I alternative think that's why sex it, acts. So, so many of those. And this book came out in 92. Mm-hmm. So it was after that first flush of the rape-tastic Yeah, looks. the bodice rippers. Yes. Yeah. And we talking like that element of, you know, that she's a good girl who was not asking for it kind of thing. Yeah. And I think like shame is something many of us hold as like part of sex and like can even be sexy. And I think managing that dichotomy gets really sticky in a sex scene. But I think in this book, it's managed really well as this kind of unleashing Well, right. She feels guilty for her wantonness. She feels guilty about how much she craves him physically. Mm -hmm. But then in that one scene, the consummation scene, the end of that scene from her POV, she curse her whatever. She loves him. It's not just the physical. It is all the emotional. Yeah. And it was just like so well managed in that way. I think part of the well management of this is that not only did we always receive like a pretty involved interiority of a sex scene but we also then got the next day mm-hmm. which sort of served as like Monday quarterbacking mm-hmm. and like there's this moment and like after their <laughs> second sex scene where she's like he's gonna say something about my wantonness I can't believe that he hasn't said anything that I cried out and like she's like deconstructing her orgasms and her reactions to yeah. sexual pleasure and then he's just like sup babe and that's how the move happens and like the <laughs> fact that like he's not freighting this with literally anything mm-hmm. and she like <laughs> done all of this work and then she's like oh now we're gonna go do the mail yeah I remember reading that morning after scene and noting how neutral her interpretation of Christian was the Mm -hmm. morning after you're right it wasn't freighted with anything like his actions weren't anything it was just him being comfortable with it right and that kind of ends the chapter and kind of clarifies for us what's actually happening is good and okay as a reader and that they're like getting like into a space with each other that's like more authentic and more real and like he can like speak in fuller sentences at like the initiation of like foreplay and sex and like by the end then he's like replete and whatever and then like you know the next morning he's like sup babe you ready to do the chores (laughs) and it's fluid like their physical relationship has this other element as Melanie so nicely said for her it's like love it's like entwining the two pieces and for him it's like recovery Mm-hmm. Recovery and also he feels that having kind of sealed the deal, he is kind of placing a claim on her. Right. right. Like, okay, because she becomes like his savior. Like, And that was important to me to see the transition from, oh, here's a woman who's going to help me mm-hmm. and I want her in my life because of what she can do for me versus I love her for who she is. Mm-hmm. And that's why that like last scene is such a clincher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then in the third act, when he realizes that his motivation has become less about protecting himself and more about protecting Maddie's yes. position within yes. his life. That's um, a big deal for me because the moment of like, I love her, it's like he loves her because she sees him inside, mm-hmm. not the beast, not the man who can't speak. And to see that kind of transition from how she's going to help him to who she is and how he loves her. Yeah. Exactly. Like it goes from like this kind of selfish early mm-hmm. place of like, I love the way she makes me feel. Right. And there is an element of selfishness quite a while through, I think, yeah. through oh, the storyline yeah. and how he's looking at different ways of how he can manipulate the situation to keep her in his life. 
life. Yep. Exactly. And yeah. there's something so true about it. Like it doesn't happen. Unselfish love is not something that happens the first time you see someone and you're like, wow, what a dream boat. I would die for you. <laughs> That's not how the world works. Yeah. And it goes through this process of spending a lot of really hard time together. Like getting married is not the happily ever after mm-hmm. in this text. It creates right. its own set of mm-hmm. angst and circumstances. And the characters are constantly working through it. I mean, there are parts of the book where it's like they didn't have sex for like three weeks. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's real. <laughs> yeah. That again, like the time of this book is so interesting. So like that moment, we have these two like back to back sex scenes and then they don't have sex again for like seven days. And he like begins to like ponder this coldness that's like erupted mm-hmm. between them. And he, he calls it like a glacial civility. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ooh, there's nothing worse than the silent treatment. And like both of you are not going to address the chasm that's opened up. But like both of you know that it's there. (laughs) Like the carnal creaturely part of you is like not being addressed. And you retreat into this. Yes, thank you. (laughs) No, thank you. And I was like, oh boy, that's real. Right. And that the physicality will break through all that again. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta, yeah, you gotta, you gotta engage the creature. <laughs> oh, I love that term, creaturely. Oh, it's I did creaturely. too. Creaturely, everything's creaturely. The dirty talk for a book about a Quaker and someone recovering from a stroke is very good. In this book. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Though. And the thing that's fascinating, this so this book, I feel like, is a favorite of a lot of people. Like, if you talk about what is your favorite romance novel, this book pops up, I think, fairly often. Yeah, so. I think you're exactly right. Like, if I were to describe this to someone, especially. <laughs> Especially in our current day and age, and I'd be like, a man suffers a stroke. They don't know it's a stroke. He's put in a mental institution. His nurse falls in love with him. She's a Quaker. He's a dupe. The bullet points sound like yeah, preposterous this is a mess. and a bit like what? There's like abuse going on here. <laughs> right, on all exactly. The levels. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it never came across as that. And I would say that I'm not a person who enjoys angst. I could not get enough of the angst in this book. Mm-hmm. There's right. The flavor of it is right. I totally get what you're saying. It wasn't anyone being like I was pretty in high school well, right, it's, yeah it's grounded in these pieces that are so much like a central part of not just themselves but of things that are bigger than they are and it yeah. isn't just it isn't trivial <laughs> it isn't trivial but it's also not baroque like you can believe that someone had a stroke right. and was put in a mental institution yes. and you can believe that someone was raised Quaker and holds these ideas as part of their like intrinsic value right and those are really the key moments that kind of propel the angst in the text but there's nothing like and then I watched my mother get shot and then I became a pirate and then I became you <laughs> right. know like it's not I, I you know I would love on. to ask the author like what was the moment like what inspired her to start this book like what yeah. was the because I think most authors will have like a, a snapshot. There'll be some little glitch that they're like, oh, and I wonder what that little piece was that sent her off on the Quaker Duke. What if it was the math? And like, I want to go back. So you're like, I wasn't pretty in high school. And I was like, can we talk about the first scene where we get a physical description of our heroine? And her hair. And her and hair. it was so brilliantly done. Oh my God. Cause so, so her father is blind and they're having this kind of celebratory meal after the great math night. And <laughs> the great math night. Also romance titles. Math. 
laughing. Anybody I guess should everyone take. was super into it. The great and so bath night. Mother is dead in the very Cinderella-esque way. It, you know, mm-hmm. these things happen. And the, <laughs> the father has been blind, I think, since Maddie was like eight or nine. And yeah. so her mother converted to Quakerism for her father. Yes. I think, How yeah. shit that mathematician. Which is interesting because we get another move. So the Duke, when they're all having this dinner, he looks at Maddie and he says to her father, you know, he's like, do you want me to describe her to you? And it was so beautiful. At first, she herself is very self-conscious and no, 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 that's silly. Don't do that. But then her father was so like, yes, please. And like the, <laughs> the yearning in his voice and the fact that nobody had thought to ever do this for her father. Uh-huh. I mean, I fell in love with the Duke then. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. And then he's using it to like needle her, but also like give this incredible Yes, like he's gift. kind of teasing her because the father's yeah. blind, so he can't see the smirks and the, the little things he's yeah. doing to her. Mm-hmm. But the great gift that he gives her dad, and the fact oh. that he even thought of it in the first place. Right, which and all of these other people hadn't, including his daughter, where she's like, I could have just had your hands on my face this whole time. But it also was very believable because in the day-to-day of, of your life, exactly. those things kind of just slip by. Yeah. There's this beautiful moment where we're in our heroine's perspective and she starts to get embarrassed and mm-hmm. think that he's getting like a little too sexual or wanton yeah, he in his He talks about her flushed boobs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like in front of her. And I was like, stop it. And then we get a piece of dialogue from her father where she looks over at her dad and he's tearing up and he's like, no one ever told me you looked like your mom. Mm-hmm. And then I, I was like, well, it's feels. fine. I yeah, but I was suddenly like, it's totally <laughs> okay. Right? He was being weirdly sexual because her dad needs to know. Right, and like, he even makes a couple of sexual kind of innuendos and the dad's like okay you're being a little too you know (laughs) but his dad in a sense I think he's kind of chuckling about it and I think he appreciates his daughter being treated as a woman yeah Yeah. and I think that was the moment when I was like oh this is a very good book this is a very good book (laughs) right how she puts those pieces together and we get that character description in a way that yeah and it's again masterclass in deep POV it is incredible another one of my favorite scenes is when she walks into the holding cell of our hero and recognizes him. The way she describes the sensation of recognizing someone that you have like a little bit of a crush on and you're seeing them, it was just like so keyed up. It was just effusive in me when I was reading it. It's fun because we recognize the fact she has a crush on him from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And she, of course, does not right. understand yeah. that this is what she's feeling. <laughs> she's like, it's an opening, right? <laughs> That's oh, it's an opening. Uh, yeah, the dramatic irony of that moment moment was so intense. It's like not unlike Shakespeare in some cases where it's like the twins are about to be revealed as like that they're brother and sister and one of them's still alive. We know. We know it's coming. We know that. Yeah. Okay, so now that I have to think about that because I rereading this is it set up in such a way that do we know that the Duke is there before Maddie sees him? Mm-mm. Okay, no. so that see that's the thing. So rereading that, I was coming at it already knowing this. No, we don't know. We know that like the position that he offered, Dad fell through. There's like all of this discussion. So the knowledge that he's, that he's a patient there mm-hmm. is a full on dun dun dun. Tbh, I didn't look up anything about this book before reading it, and once he has the stroke, I thought he got shot in the duel, and I was like, at last, a ghost romance. <laughs> I was like, he is oh, dead. so while you were reading it, oh my goodness. See, that's so, I couldn't come at it that way because I know all of these things. Yeah. yeah. And so whenever she recognized him in the cell, I was genuinely like, oh, oh alive. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I thought we were at last reading a ghost rope. Oh, <laughs> not yet. 
I think they're out there. There are. I mean, if you really want. People fall in love with ghosts. I also like that a ghost was the impetus for them to have sex. She was too afraid of going back oh, to her room. Oh, she was totally playing that. And she, I think, even, there was some lampshading within that. <laughs> oh, totally. <laughs> Where she acknowledged. Well, I also love that shift in perspective from the Duke, who's like, of course this place is haunted. Literally. Of course this is real, but I'm very cool with ghosts. Yeah. And then Maddie's perspective that was like, of course ghosts aren't real. I'm just freaking out for no reason. And then they have sex. Well, they're because they're, <laughs> they're both tiptoeing about like, how do we get in bed together? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially after he's promised not to have <laughs> sex with her. Which like, I'm going to hold everything ghost related as very genuine in this book because I want a ghost romance. This a ghost romance believes in ghosts. Like that's like the last two sentences of the epilogue. It's like, I know what that means. Yeah. It's about the big like Irish wolfhound. That's the oh ghost. yeah, yeah. And then he's like, "I saw that tail, and it wasn't devil or cast. I know Aww. what that means. She dope pregnant." I was like, "Don't. Does she have to be?" But okay, well, I'm not. Mad. At least one of her other books is very much magical realism, mm. like where the heroine has like psychic abilities. Cool. I love a good psychic. I'm not gonna lie. Each of her books, and there's the one with the heroine who's brilliant, and she's really into aeronautics, and is building mm-hmm. her own airplane, and she keeps a hedgehog in her pocket. Wow. <laughs> her, name, her name is Merlin. <laughs> <laughs> she writes like these fabulous characters that there is something Laura can say I did note that she is from Texas mm-hmm. and I do believe that Texans have an inherent belief in the supernatural because I was raised by one who oh. semi does that's why Texas is big Texas is big Texas number one consumers of true crime media that I would not have guessed yeah Oh, not a weird fact. Weird fact about Texas. That's a weird fact about Texas. Thank you. You know what else <laughs> is weird about the author's note? <laughs> like the whole thing about the, he was a geologist for six years and I oh, like yeah. hung out with people on oil rigs and then I thought like that was pushing my luck. <laughs> I like that she's wearing a newsboy I like everything about Laura Kinsale. Look at her. She looks so nice. Was she really nice? She was amazing. So I did get to meet her at a conference in San Diego. I was a Golden Heart finalist and I was super excited and then I happened to be walking into the bathroom and who was walking out but Laura Kinzale and I lost my mind (laughs) I really lost my damn mind I get it. But she was very gracious, and I told her how she was my favorite author ever, and she was kind of like how I became hooked on romance novels, and there was quite a bit of fangirling and gushing. And she was very, like I said, very gracious. And she's also very savvy, so I talked about how much I love her audiobooks, but she started her own audiobook company called Hedgehog Inc. You know, (laughs) hedgehog in the pocket, very cute. So yeah, so she kind of went through the process of all of this and decided that she was going to do this for herself. So she started her own company, kind of tracked down her own narrator she wanted to use and all these different pieces. So I thought that was brilliant wow. as well. That's really smart. That's so yeah, one. so she was, she, yeah, I really liked meeting her and she was amazing. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I was, yes, I full on did the fangirl thing, so. Can I ask you an authory question? Yes. What was your author photo shoot like? Did you want- So, you know, okay, this is kind of silly. I have a couple of author photos that were done like at conferences and whatnot. But then when it came time to my editor saying, hey, you need to send us an author pick, I have done a couple of vintage pinup shoots at a place in Chicago called Vavoom Pinups. And the, <laughs> the owner of the place is this awesome woman who's kind of like girl boss and does cool things. And I loved those photos. And there's like one of me like in kind of a very authory pose with like my hand on my chin or something. <laughs> and, and my hair and makeup is awesome. So I'm like, I'm going to use one of those. So it's such a cliche, horrible thing that I used a glamour shot. 
for my author photo, and this is also funny because in the pic you can't see it, but I'm not wearing any pants. <laughs> a little bit of secret knowledge. It's a secret, yes, yeah, secret. Yeah, not well, obviously not that secret now. Uh, it's, it's like a men's shirt I'm wearing, yeah. and from the picture it just looks like you know a shirt, like a professional shirt, but yeah. it's a men's shirt with no pants. But you can't see mm. that part of it in the author photo. Romance 360. Oh man, that's so funny. So, and I mean, part of me is kind of embarrassed that I went that direction, but you know what? It's my author photo, and I thought it was fun. I thought for sure, like, your publisher would be like, you have to go to one of these six headshot places. No, and if my editor thought that the photo was cheesy, she kept it to herself. (laughs) It was cropped. She didn't realize I had no pants on. (laughs) She wasn't sent the full (laughs) way. I didn't send her the full picture. (laughs) Let's be honest about the genre. I will be wearing no pants in my author photo. This is how I want my readers. That's right. Speaking of which, Mm. should we get to our format? Sure. What was the sexiest part? Oh my goodness. Um, so we're talking about that scene where she's, you know, the ghost and the Mm -hmm. and is there a ghost? There's not a ghost, and they get into the bed together. He's laying against her, you know, they're spooning, and he's naked, of course, and and aroused as she notices. She flips the POV. So we start the scene in his POV, and he's like, I'm not gonna do anything, I'm just gonna hold her. I promised I wouldn't do this. And then we flip to her POV and how she's kind of starting to have a sexual awakening through touch. And he tells her, and this is, again, back in 92, where we don't have a lot of focus on consent. Mm -hmm. And in my books, I make that a big part of the sex scenes is consent is there and it's sexy. Mm -hmm. And in this scene, we do get sexy consent Mm -hmm. because he tells her, tell me to stop. Tell me to stop. Tell me to stop. And so he's starting to touch her and he's starting to do things and we get from A to B to C. But that there is that consent there and that it is kind of in her hands to to slow things down. Yeah. Which is yeah. So sexy. So it sexy. was. And it was so brilliantly done. And there's that other scene where he says he wants her to say, I want you mm-hmm. before he has sex with her. I love that scene mm-hmm. too. And that's a really powerful one too. And this is kind of personal, but I I mean I feel like there is that kind of element of where I always want to feel wanted. Right. But I don't always make the man feel wanted. Like yeah. that. and so that is an important for him to feel desired too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like especially that scene, so like when he's like, You tell me to stop, I'm like, this feels coercive. But then, like, he also is, like, reading her body. And, like, mm-hmm. those POV shifts are yes. so important. Like, yeah, every he time he, the, she, the like... The languidness of her, that she's mm-hmm. not freezing up. That she is kind right. of melting into him. Yeah. yeah. That it's always described in any moment that she has of hesitation, there's an immediate stoppage of what's right. happening. Right, and, and yeah. he's still struggling with language at this point. Right. So there is this kind of, like, rather than count on words to do the job, he is focusing on body language. Yeah. For 1992, I was like, this is exactly what it means when, like, watching for actors active, excited consent, right? Mm-hmm. And what's so great about that scene is, like, they both have a language barrier. It's not mm-hmm. like this, you know, Quaker these guys out. <laughs> she doesn't know how to ask for what she wants. Right. She doesn't even know what she wants. Oh, my right. God, that scene where she just starts giving him a foot rub, and you can tell it's like she doesn't know. Yeah. Part of it is that's great, too, is, like, she doesn't know. It's all improper for her. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's all improper for her. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. to whatever else. Foot rubs yes, to oral. Yes. Yeah. There's that wonderful moment where they're making out on the floor, oh, and we're in mad perspective she knows that it isn't chaste she thinks that in her head and I was like this is actually also very progressive for 1992 to be like sex exists as something outside of penetrative right. procreative yes. heteronormative thing like sex is all sorts of things and mm-hmm. she recognizes that she is in a way having sex we're making love 
love. Yeah. She's making love. We read a lot of classic historicals on this podcast. We do. And I rarely feel safe reading the sex scenes. <laughs> yeah. And those, and this was like There's one like of those the situations. Gi- the biggest grain of salt ever. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And there was something in like the fact that she was like, we can't have sex so that we can annul the marriage. And he's like, okay, I promise. And then the book had all of these other scenes of intimacy where mm-hmm. he stopped whenever she pointed it out and talked about the fact that they never went very far because she always pointed it out. That made me feel really safe reading that first sex scene, which is usually the place where I'm like, yeah, the most nervous. There were plenty of other historicals where the hero does acknowledge this moment where, you know, but then he pushes through anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Because his feelings, you know. Yeah. And she'll like it eventually. (laughs) Or my favorite. Well, that's right. She's a a prostitute, so it's a given. Or she's my wife. He mistakes the heroine for a prostitute, which Mm -hmm. is also BS. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I agree. Like the buildup of these like episodes of intimacy and like the fact that like not only are they building an intellectual trust and like we've talked about like how like he's reliant on her as like an island in the oasis of this crisis that he's having yes. uh, with the stroke but like how that makes that initial move from like I rely on you for like language and like making sense of this world to also like I can show something else to you mm-hmm. and like we can do something fun together and like I can lead you in this particular way and like we don't need all this other stuff because like we have this sort of trust already built into well, this and I think yeah and there's like this moment that he needs her mm-hmm. but then like there's this moment where he finally gets to show himself as the person that she needs he wants to be shown to be competent as yeah. well and like I think it's when they're buying the ring mm-hmm. or there's something in that moment and yeah. how important it is for him to be like I've got this I yeah. know what I'm doing I, yeah. I can do this and I love the fact that he goes into this like capitalistic exchange and that's the one exchange where he doesn't need to speak <laughs> they're like, they like they're like we know you we know you you're good for this yes just twenty-five pounds for those buckles I'm and not gonna ask here's you a why ring. you're giving me buckles here's a ring congratulations sir good day and he's like do you see I am I, I am, am the shit I am, yeah exactly like it doesn't matter what's like, going on and it's on. such a like it's such a true emotion to like want to be seen mm-hmm. as you know important especially after she's viewing him in his lowest yeah so. and not just capable but like you're right important yeah I don't need a hundred percent of my faculties to get three hundred dollars cash right away yeah again all of it I know <laughs> this book is so good what's your sexiest part my sexiest part is actually back at the mental institution <laughs> <laughs> okay there's a part where he gets leave to work with her father on a math problem mm-hmm. and her cousin thinks it's okay as long as she's in the room because he had a really good time on his walk with her which was my other favorite thing her cousin being like the walk really lit him up and like she was like he put kittens on her oh, head that and kissed so her sexual. to hold her still oh my he God, put kittens. kittens on her genius but he's working on this math problem Maddie is really bored and starts to acknowledge that she's disappointed that he doesn't want to go for a walk with her because she was kind of looking forward to it but mm-hmm. he's like so into the math and then her father kind of starts working on something and Jeffo <laughs> Christian gets up and starts walking around the parlor looking at her and she's just pressed up against the door very nervous and realizing that he's gonna come near her and she has her 
rape whistle. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The whistle. And he walks up to her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he like puts his fists on either side of her and she's just staring up at him and he picks up her whistle. Oh my and God, he yes, is that is so tracing hot. her lips with it and she's nervous and so she's making these little whistle sounds <laughs> and her dad is like, is there a bird? Because he's blind. And when you can combine hot and sexy and funny, funny. at the same yeah. time. Oh my God. I forget that scene, yeah. And he's like, so licks her ears, does something like very and like, you can very so visualize that moment where they're like, the <laughs> he puts the whistle. Oh my God. That was my sexiest part. She talks about him like moving his arm. Like he has one fist on one side of her and then slowly moves up the other so that she's like trapped. And she like talks about the fact that she can't see the world past him. Right. His body is almost a character in this book. In yes. Life. It's yes. so big. It's, right. Early 90s hunk. Very much so. But also like <laughs> the way that's like marshaled in terms of like control and like the fact that he has a hard time writing because he's originally left-handed and then like the way in which his stroke has affected his muscles and he has a much harder time Mm -hmm. writing and like it's always like a weird stiffness or pain like his body's actually out of his His, control his right side always looks a little different to him and he can hardly see it yeah because of his stroke and I loved that as a discussion of being out of control rather than like my sexual appetite (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, exactly like he genuinely (gasps) doesn't know how to like make his body work because his brain has been fogged in well, this particular way. That scene is precipitated, the one I talked about, because he decides he's going to get revenge on her by seducing her mm-hmm. because she had thought she was doing something really kind and bringing him clothes, but she was oh, yes. unknowledgeable right. about how to dress. And, and she this dressed where, him and again, for and writing. And this is where, you know, Kinzale shows that he can still be kind of a snob. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so he thinks that she's going to escape with him. That's why he's dressed her for writing and she realizes what she's done. And there's completely earned angst where, like, he can't fully understand her when she's like, I'm sorry for what I did. I didn't mean to do that. And her trying to make that and comprehensible. The class difference. Like, yeah. The class difference. The she's fact like, that she can't work I it out. This is where I saw men of your station. They were always at the park. They were always, always in their writing, writing habits. Oh, shit. And also that moment where it's like, you try to do something nice for someone, but you've totally misunderstood the situation. Yes, yes. And then, like, you are thrown into it. We talked about shame earlier, but, like, that was a moment where it's like, I actually felt something shrivel inside of me. Yeah. Where I was, like, oh so my embarrassed God. for her and felt so bad. It was wrenching. It and was. then when he eventually moves on from wanting to get revenge on her, there's a moment where he's, like, really frustrated because he remembers wanting to get revenge on her, but he can't remember why, so he has to let it go. That is, like, utterly earned. It's not like we're just forgetting a plot line right. and moving on. Like we are, right. it's part of the character. Like these pieces like start out with maybe, now I wouldn't say nefarious, but maybe selfish reasons. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, feelings happen. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. What was your sexiest part, Isabel? I loved them making out on the floor in the hallway <laughs> and like looking up at his ducal castle and he's like uh, five beams up and two over because he can't, can't point. point. And he's like, see dog and like see Lily and like he's telling her the story of like his lineage, which is like whatever, but also like really cool. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and the way he explains that she needs to protect herself by reciting this letter he's memorized. Mm-hmm. 
And it's like one of the things he can hold on to in a way he has of expressing himself really clearly. That was very moving. Yeah, I just love it when he's got his hand on her waist and it's like also slow and like so nice. And we're like, just like the idea of like lying next to someone as like they're like explaining something that they love to you. Yeah. People who are like constellations or whatever. It's an intimacy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I loved that. What was your weirdest part, Isabel? Oh, man. What is my weirdest part? You know what? It's very specific. His friend Durham Hmm. is a second son who has no way to make his life in the the world. Yeah. And he provides living for him as a curate or like a priest. I like that they laugh about it and he also keeps this apartment in London and like, you know, he's never never at his priesthood. Yeah, I think it shows that side of Christian, that kind of like what Maddie viewed as being, you know, rakish and, you know, totally like I have this position I can give to whoever I'm going to give it to my buddy. Right, yeah. he like needs to support his gambling habit in London and his very funny servant, like man of all work. But then like the way that that particular sort of really funny plot point that we get in chapter one, that then it's like then marshaled as like a full on plot device. And like, that's how they get married. I was like, oh, wow, that was a really excellent seating. But I also feel a little bit skeevy about all of it. And like, then that Durham is the main obstacle at the end because he's written this letter where it's like Richard Gill was ostensibly supposed to have written that yeah. came from the dad and like perpetrated this lie that Christian no longer really remembers the details of and like she immediately forgives Durham and like holds Christian responsible for this ploy that he didn't do and I was like that's weird Durham that's weird Durham <laughs> but also that's weird Maddie I love her name Archimedia and yeah. like Maddie's like I was like nah Maddie Archimedia is so much better we could have so called he calls her Maddie girl. Oh. Oh. That had to grow on me after. I think it's the only time where a dude can call a girl the nickname his dad Stop. has her for dad. her. Yeah. And it's the okay. Yeah, yeah I like, exactly. In my head, I was like, I shouldn't like this. This is exactly the kind of thing I rail against. But I was like, I like it because he can only think of it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he's picking up from his memory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maddie girl. And he's like, little... it's like he grasps onto it. And, yeah. Yeah. Cause mad. That was genius. Because I couldn't figure out what he was doing. I was like cuz mad cuz mad like is he mad and then I was like he's trying to say cousin Maddie in right, his own mind the doctor was saying yeah because yeah. he was trying to remember that was genius all of the language problems and then like as the language began to untangle itself his mind began to untangle itself for us so good what a good follow-through yeah I mean, Durham was my weirdest part what was your weirdest I'm part? trying to think like when I've been trying to think what is my weirdest part and is it that I love this book so much I can't really think of anything that makes me think it's weird and I'm like <laughs> hmm I remember when I was first reading it and I feel like we are always harder on the heroines than the mm-hmm. heroes. Mm-hmm. And I do remember when I first read it and she was so against like any of his kind of like outrageous gestures of generosity and she was always chastising him and making him feel bad about himself for them. That bothered me. And I, I'm trying to like unpack that. So I don't know if it's necessarily weird, but it's that it was like, come on, just like accept that he's doing nice things for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just let it happen. <laughs> Thou shalt not buy me pretty things, you know, or whatever. Yeah, and dude, just... He showed up with that crown. Oh, you know what? My other weirdest part is the king showing up with like the Duke of Wellington. That's a lot. That's a celebrity cameo. Yeah, what? <laughs> <laughs> 
that we spent so much time <laughs> like, talking about here? the King George and like why he is this way and his gout and his like carriage and like the times that he actually did good things for Britain. Like there's a full like two I or three pages. I thought there would be like I thought so that, that could also it could be author indulgence. Oh, like, totally. Know, and I was like, no, it happens. I get it. I'm like, <laughs> I, I, I heard writing. I'd be like, did you know King George did this? I didn't know that. So yeah, I just learned about how he like fixed this whole thing and the king showing up was a little like part of me as I was reading that ball unfolding I was like I kind of hope the king doesn't show up and that it really is just like oh right because they were so dependent his, on yeah. this piece happening yeah that. and I was like that would have been some high stakes yeah exactly it's super high stakes imagine the angst and then them having to like fix it you know I'm thinking <sighs> more about like what you're saying with those pieces of information that aren't necessarily relevant and are kind of indulgent this is before Wikipedia oh totally so this is like stuff that she probably was on the ground researching yep. finding out and yeah. so yeah this is somebody who's like I found this amazing piece of information in this book that I spent 11 <laughs> hours finding and I'm gonna give it to you because A I think it's interesting and B it works just enough for my plot point <laughs> you know, and like you need it you need to know this thing about King George and his beautiful blue eyes and I, I have like, this like resentment towards author indulgence I think because I get really excited about facts and stuff that I learn and I want to share it with people but I have to watch their facial expressions like glaze over <laughs> whereas like Laura can Sale can just it put in. it in a book and be like I shared this with you you'll never forget like guys guess what no one yawns in their face I will never forget that King George took on personal checker also how weird like what a cool weird thing you know it it kind of is reflective of like how small the world was back then because Mm -hmm. we were just talking about how silly it is that a woman who works in a casino as a senior vice president would have direct customer service relationships with people and now we're like oh yeah King George had direct relationships with people who didn't have lawyers. I'm yeah. Like, hmm. So interesting. So did you have a weirdest part? My weirdest part was really hard to think of because this book is so mm-hmm. tight and I I was going to do King George. And I was oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. You can share gonna do the letter. I want to share something else. Mm-hmm. I have a hard time with what I'm supposed to feel about Gil. <gasps> Richard Gill! Yeah. Yeah, he is kind of, because he's thrown in there as the foil. Foil. The woulda, coulda, shoulda. But at the same time, I'm like, I don't know, he kind of sucks because he is like, I'm a good Quaker. And Archimedia is like, oh, he's a good man. He's a better man than you. He like, also says a that. And like, he's a gardener. And like, it is all fitting. But then I'm like, your boy Christian is right. Like, he just straight up tried to seduce you in your marital home. Like, that's wild. I liked Richard Gill so. Much. I don't know if I'm supposed to like him or feel the same way I feel about the other antagonists in the book where I'm like, I don't like mm. him, but I understand him. And Either I understand way. him, mm-hmm. but I don't like him. <laughs> I don't like him because he's getting in Christian's way. Yeah. <laughs> this is all wrapping up very And again, neatly. it's all tied to my 15-year-old connection to this book and yeah. how I was like, no, she has to be with Christian. Get out of here. <laughs> um, Excuse me. Christian has eyes that are as blue as the ocean. Uh, <laughs> and so... full black hair. <laughs> Yeah, amazing I, th- I, chest, think that, I think that kind of is my kryptonite because, like, it's Prince Eric. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh it, yeah, is it, is, it is Prince Eric. I was doing some online research for this book, and I have to say, I got a little frustrated with fan castings because a lot of them chose dark men with dark eyes, and the blue eyes is a big deal here. Yeah, it's the contrast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like, it'll look weird Tom if they Welling. were colored. Mm. Mm. <laughs> That'd be a good. <gasps> That's so good. It's really good. That's 
a really good, good one. I don't know who I'd do for the fan. I don't know if I would do him for Christian, but like I, when I think of yeah, you know, the dark hair, cold black hair, blue eyes, eyes. Yep. major chest. Yep. Yeah, major chest. <laughs> major chest. <laughs> the other thing that I think I had a hard time with was the daughter, Diane. I, Diane, Diana, and I understand that like he connects with this child because he has this moment where he thinks he has caused a miscarriage and he like suddenly thinks of himself as a father and he wants to take care of this little girl but everything else in the book is so snug and makes sense I read the prologue and so I knew that she was pregnant Mm -hmm. like whenever she resurfaced whenever Mm -hmm. Edie resurfaced I remember thinking like oh this is just to like so you're talking about the mistress right yeah the mistress and the fact that he has this child child. Yeah, yeah yeah it just felt like maybe a bridge too far maybe like a little too much angst convenient as well and it's like because those pieces that open the story because the story opens with him in bed with his mistress yeah. and he notices that she's pregnant mm-hmm. and then we meet Durham and the other and so these players that all of these moments in this scene not necessarily per se but then they come back and yeah, yeah. later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I loved the consistency of his friends, Durham and Fane. And like pulling that through, like I agree, there's stuff about the illegitimate baby that felt like ramping up the stakes in a yeah, particular yeah. kind of way. But like they're so immediately accepting of Maddie and that they like <laughs> tease her and they love her and they're like, you know, she's like, don't call me Duchess. And then they come up with other names to call her like Mistress That's and Nan always, and, and Bolt Marm. and Nicholas Bolton does such a great job with their voices. Oh they my sound God, yes. like the you know, English good old boys. <laughs> yeah, they do. Totally do. And then, like, they do the exact same thing when Diana comes into his life and, like, they're getting her baubles and, yeah, like, yeah. and beautiful embroidery and, like, even the servants are getting her, like, beautiful stuff. And, yeah. like, the way in which, like, the panoply of family mm-hmm. came into discussion around, like, this is the family that, like, Christian has built rather than the family that he was born into. Because yes. the family that he's born into is, like, right. constantly trying to fuck him over. <gasps> yes. Oh, my God. His butler, Calvin. Calvin, just immediately leaving his mother's house and going to his. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I know he's the Duke and, like, technically that's, like, Calvin's boss. But I was still like, yeah. Right. Yeah, <laughs> Calvin was like, let's we, go. And we yeah. see snippets of him in the beginning because he's the one that interacts with Maddie on a regular basis. Yeah. yeah. She's at the house. You know, having they, to wait for him to come back with his math problem solved. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, God. Okay. There's, like, one other scene that I want to talk about the brilliance of. But the scene when Edie, the mistress, shows up and she's been told that the Duke is not at home. And then she goes up the stairs. Oh, she, like, loses her yeah. mind. She's introduced yeah. to Maddie as she gets to his, his wife. And his yes. Life. And she plays hysterical woman. She's screaming. She's, like, you know. And then, like, the person and, like, the servants come out to, like, gawk at her. And, like, there's this real, like, melodramatic scene. And and then like Christian's at the top of the stairs just like glaring down at her like half shaven and then the person who interrupts this scene of hysteria and like melodrama is Maddie and like she comes up and she gets on the stairs and she's like I'm so sorry it happened this way and like relates to her like as such a person is like Edie's yeah. problems are real her husband's dead she's living on a pit and she's yeah. got this illegitimate kid the things that she expected and also the price that she must bear for their affair yeah is like so much higher than the price he has to pay and, and so like to exactly. have our heroine treat another antagonist as like a living breathing feeling woman yeah and like Maddie acknowledges like you really loved him the way you felt for him was real and I think that's so true like otherwise why wouldn't she just allow herself to be 
extricated from him by saying like this is my husband's child she's going to live with his family like why does she choose to hold on to this like no this is his child and I want to see that through to its bitter end and yeah I think that's true it like takes her very seriously and her means of self-expression very seriously like this is how she knows how to react and behave in this situation yeah and that like Maddie gives her all of that like space space to do it and like authenticates it and like validates it and then like the next scene they're like going to sleep and she's like you have a lock of her hair in a miniature like you're a bad dude and I was like oh yes call him out and also the fact that the lock of hair in a miniature comes back to bear in the story is fascinating my other favorite thing is how the book handles the way Maddie looks because oftentimes books will be like she was beautiful but didn't realize it and they try to think about Kathleen Woody West being like I'm too thin and my boobs are too big I'm just live in Yeah, that was me. Whereas, like, Maddie, like, no one ever overinflates the way she looks. They just really like the way she looks. And it's because she's kind of a plain feature. Like, she's not ugly but she's not like she's not like gorgeous and she doesn't think of herself as plain but really she's beautiful yeah mm-hmm. and I think when people start to find her attractive is they they like her yeah. yeah and so you 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 naturally start to think of someone like when they're they're attractive to you is their personality and who they are as a person yeah that just becomes a whole part of the package oftentimes I get exhausted with the idea like a physical feature can have a personality but it did feel right for Christian to see her eyelashes as wanton oh, well right because like, <laughs> the, the, right this sinful piece of her that was otherwise so and the way he describes her as all the things that she does that she thinks are making her more maidenly yeah she doesn't know that keeping her hair in these tight braids is letting me see her neck Mm -hmm. yeah and whenever he unpins her hair i love a good unpinning and the hair that is like down to her back of her knees real crystal gale real (laughs) crystal gale situation and i love the way that like he describes it that it looks like you know a dark ale poured through light Yeah. yeah i mean it was full on over the top but it was still great. It was like over the top, but not in a way that was unbelievable. Right. It all felt like something that someone might think about you. It's the appropriate level. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Yeah, I loved this book. I well, romance or nomance? Womance. 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 Yeah. If you read one romance novel, I mean, read Flowers from the Storm. This is how I feel. Yeah, I mean, this is like, if you were trying to introduce people to romance, this one is pretty heavy, but it is amazing. You know, like it's, we have to kind of give it with a caveat that, like, not all romances will hit this. Le- I know. I'm exactly. worried that I'm ruined. We're gonna set your so. no. Definitely not. There are definitely. This other This is just books. a really good bar. It's like a cleanup hitter. It's like really good that this came when it did for you. Yeah. In the lineup, so that yeah. you didn't have to feel so cynical about the genre. But right. Like also, there are you know other Laura Kinsale type authors out there that you have yet to discover. It's so diverse. This genre. And there are other Laura Kinsales that you have yet yeah. to discover. As well. Also, I love the paratext. There's mm-hmm. an ad for Harper Lux. What could be more luxurious than 14-point type? (laughs) (laughs) In the cover flap on this version of the book, there's some, like, you know, author blurbs. And you've got, like, some of the queens of the day, like Mm -hmm. Susan Elizabeth Phillips, Mm. saying probably the best historical romance ever published. (laughs) (laughs) It's a heavy hitter. Remains a heavy hitter and not all 
historical romances Don't, from 1992. Right, and that was my biggest concern was revisiting this. Will it stand up? And yeah. I feel it like does. it does. Yeah, it does. There's it also Bill Clinton. The edition I got <laughs> is from 2002, and they included the blurb that ran in the back of other romance novels to advertise it, which I thought was really great. And it was based on the blind items that used to run about the Duke of Chavot before his stroke. I loved it. I did too. Oh, good. Every I'm beat, glad every you guys turn. Enjoyed it. Yeah, this is aspirational. Yeah, exquisite. So, Melanie, you've got big things happening for you. Three books in three months. Three books in three months. Are they all coming out on the 30th? No, so we have basically the last Tuesday of every month. So we have April 30th is Getting Hot with the Scott. So Mm -hmm. we have five besties on vacation. And the heroine, you know, is decided that this is her chance to let loose. And she wants a foreign fling. Mm -hmm. Where are they on vacation? So um, each girl gets to choose a country. (gasps) And so it's five European countries. And Cassie, the heroine, did not choose Scotland. She chose France because she wanted, like, this romantic adventure. Yeah. Paris, but she comes across, literally stumbles across a kilted Highlander. There's, in Paris? No, in Edinburgh. Oh. And it's pronounced Edinburgh, which I learned. <laughs> but what happens is I take a lot of tropes that I love and kind of their affectionate nods. Mm-hmm. So we have a very kind of wink, wink, nod, nod to the time-traveling Highlander mm-hmm. <laughs> in this one. And in each book, there are these elements of what you consider to be popular romance tropes. And there's there's, like I said, affectionate nod. And so book two is Smitten by the Brit, and that is coming out May 28th, and that one is very much a love story to Austin. I would say that's a book one love story to romances, period. Uh-huh. Romance novels and the Highlander romances. Book two is kind of a love story to Austin, and so he's a duke, and, <laughs> and he's, of course, in need of funds, and, mm-hmm. you know, you know, there's kind of conniving Lady Catherine figure who's trying to manipulate his marriage, and all those little pieces. And the, the heroine is a huge fan of Austin and Shakespeare mm-hmm. and she is like you know I've always wanted to be in an Austin novel and <laughs> not that I find myself in one like just again so a hot. lot of like fun little pieces if you yourself enjoy these things it's kind of like you'll be in on the joke but I hope that even if you're not a lover of Shakespeare or Austin you'll still enjoy the ride and then book three is Once Upon a Bad Boy and that one comes out June 25th and that one is Second Chance Romance and I get to, there's quite a few Star Wars references oh, <laughs> in there because okay. he's very much the Han Solo, you know, oh. yes, he's the rogue, Shoots he's the scoundrel, first. yes. <laughs> so there's like these little things that I've loved and kind of like letting them slip into the stories themselves. So yeah, so three books, it will be The Summer of Melanie. <laughs> oh my so gosh. I'm glad Secret Baby didn't make the cut. So <laughs> it's a very <laughs> interesting, so, so book three, Second Chance Romance, it's not a secret baby, but there is definitely an element that I felt very strongly about that does play out in that story that I won't say any more about right now (gasps) but it was a conscious decision and I was very happy that my editor and everyone involved in putting this story together supported me on the choice that I made in this story so we'll have to circle back to that oh my gosh so where can we get the books where can we are they everywhere yeah so St. Martin's Press so any retailer they'll be on the shelves in Walmart oh my (laughs) gosh is that nuts to think about your book oh my god it's exciting and then you know so yeah an audio as well and I'm narrating the audio so that's terrifying (laughs) the first book we've done we're done recording it and I kind of want the outtakes because there were at least one point where I'm reading and I'm trying to do the Scottish accent and I'm like 
I'm like, I just turned into Sean Connery. <laughs> like, you just kind of take it too far. And they're like, whoa. It's just like a bunch of garbled, well, it just becomes, arms. Yeah, it just, well, I watched a lot of interviews of Richard Madden, which that wasn't hard to do. <laughs> That's some deep research. Is that yeah. Because he has a great modern Scottish accent that I wanted kind of yeah. to get for Logan, my hero, because he's contemporary Scott, that you can still hear it in there. And I wanted to kind of pick up on that. There's like a small scene in the rom-com Ibiza, mm-hmm. which a rom-com I wasn't that thrilled yeah, about. But yeah. there's a scene where he's leaving her a voicemail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. And he's, you know, kind of fumbling and just, you know, not able to say what he wants to say. And he, like, says, okay, you know, love you a lot. So he, like, makes fun of us. It's like, a creep. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and, like, that little roll of the R and, like, those cute little pieces. So, yeah, I spent a lot of time watching Richard Madden. I don't regret that at all. <laughs> oh <my> God, <laughs> it's a good use of my time. <laughs> it's a good use of my time. <laughs> it's a cute scene. Yeah, it's very cute. Oh, my gosh. He's I think so you cute. should do, I think you should do one set in Chicago and then you have to do an old-fashioned Chicago accent so, in your the, the books do all kind of come back to Chicago at some point. I was excited because my copy editor ended up being from Chicago herself, and that was just kismet. That was not planned. And oh so gosh. she was able to recognize these little pieces. She's like, oh my god, that is so true about Chicago. <laughs> and so she got it in a sense that, you know, not every copy editor would. So Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited. So exciting. Melanie, thank you so much for joining us. I have had a great time. Thank you for having me. (laughs) This is so great. Thank you for introducing us to this book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cannot thank you enough for this one. I'll be recommending it. No, that mind. Loosen your stays. But never your principles. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. All editing and music is done by Nick Gravelin. Our logo is by Mary Reichman. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. Feeling woeful about having to wait a whole week for more Womance? Well, cheer up, Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, or our website. Our webpage is womancepod.com. If you prefer to be more verbose and or direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com, and we can't wait to hear from you. In the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast listening app. Until next week.